Before we get started in this episode, a quick announcement. As you know, I'm very passionate about acceptance and commitment therapy, and I also run a busy practice in Canberra. We're currently looking for psychologists who are registered in Australia to join our team, who are also passionate about learning about ACT. We provide supervision on a group and individual basis and training around ACT. So if this is you, if you're interested, please express your interest at strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers. Look forward to hearing from you. And now back to this episode. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name is Nesh Nikolic, and today's guest is the wonderful Maggie Dent. She is commonly known as the Queen of Common Sense and has become one of Australia's favourite parenting authors and educators. In particular, she has a strong interest in the early years, adolescence, and resilience. Maggie's experience includes teaching counselling and working in palliative care slash funeral services, along with suicide prevention. Maggie is an advocate for the healthy common sense raising approach of children in order to strengthen families and communities. And she's incredibly passionate uh, about children of all ages. Maggie is regularly featured on parenting blogs, podcasts, and news sites, as well as being heard on commercial and ABC radio around the country. She also appears regularly on the national TV. Uh, Maggie is the host of the ABC podcast, Parental as Anything. She's author of nine major books, several ebooks, and is a prolific creator of resources for parents, adolescents, teachers, early childhood educators, and others who are interested in simply improving lives. Maggie is the proud mother of four children, four sons, and an enthusiastic and grateful grandmother. She lives on the south coast of uh, New South Wales with her good bloke, Steve Mountain. This is on her biography and their dear little dog, Mr. Hugo Walter Dent. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Maggie Dent. Maggie Dent, a real big appreciation and thank you for coming on to the show today. Oh, just thank you for having me. I love a good chat. Look, I think we've got so much to chat about. I know that you're, you know, incredibly and prolific in your in your writing. You've you've written something recently, but there's there's a lot of books, particularly in, you know, working with with young people raising kids. I know that uh, you know you've got a strong background in you know a dip ed and and a, a, a counselling you know degree as well. Um, you know, you've got so much experience but the thing that maybe comes to mind first is how did you get into that space and how how have you found yourself writing so so deeply and heavily in 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 this area it's so funny Nash because I was a um high school English teacher so you know if there's anything that puts you off writing for yourself it's correcting English you know English essays and so and so when I had my own when I went off to become a mum, I had my four, I was actually a stay-at-home mum for around seven and a half years and ended up having four boys. And um, it was kind of when I came back and realised I was a much better teacher because I'd been a parent, you know, my patience was amazingly better with those adolescent boys. And then then I I kind of realised that I had always had a knack for the troubled kids finding me in high schools. 
and they would find me, you know, at lunchtime or on my way to the car or after class. And, and one day I just had that little epiphany that I think anyone can teach kids how to write paragraphs and maybe I should, you know, be more available for the troubled kids. So I did that diploma in counselling and therapy and stepped out of the classroom. And then when I started working with those, and it was from kids from four to, you know, 18, and then the grown-ups who came in with a broken child inside them, um, I thought, well, if you work with a troubled kid, particularly a teen, you need to work with a family. So then I started running little, you know, little seminars and they kept saying, oh, God, I wish someone explained it like that before. I could have got on board with that. And then um, I burned out because I didn't have really good boundaries. I wanted to help every single troubled child in my whole community. Um, and then when I was in that space, you know, spending some time walking on, on a beach with my dog and reflecting, I thought I might just put it in a book. And so my first book was born 2003, which is Saving Our Children from Our Chaotic World, Teaching Children the Magic of Silence and Stillness, which is hilarious, right? Because it wasn't even that crazy then. We didn't have COVID. We didn't have the digital world. What was I thinking? Um, and then so accidentally, you know, as the teacher in me was still there very much. Um, and I think I brought a different voice to the space of parenting because I had been, the, you know, the counsellor, the teacher and the parent. I think the three legs on the stool gave me a slightly different voice. You know, I wouldn't let people attack parents and I wouldn't let them attack teachers. And I kept saying, look, help-seeking behaviour is really helpful. Um, but I didn't see it going this way. So I didn't see that insatiable hunger that I have for um, being in service of some kind. My dad was an amazing humanitarian and I think I've probably based, you know, I've, I've been raised you know, how can you help your community? How can you help others? That's just, you know, that was embedded in me. Um, and so it's kind of been an accidental ride and I have absolutely no idea how I've got to this kind of spot now. I've written my 10th major book, but I've written a lot of like a good teacher. I've written all sorts of mini books and e-books that I often gift away to people and organisations because my attachment isn't to kind of how much money can I make or how famous I can get. It really is. How can I be a catalyst for positive social change, especially in our families and our schools and our communities? And so it, it's kind of a ride that I never know what's around the corner. I never knew I was going to end up being a host of a podcast. Um, and when I started to do the little videos that I have on YouTube, and I have over 120 now, my motivation then was I'd been working in remote Aboriginal communities and a lot of the young mums were telling me they wanted to be different they wanted to raise their kids in healthier ways but they had such low literacy they were never going to read my books so then I thought well and I asked them and they said oh we like videos so really it was those lovely Aboriginal girls who are probably now you know 40 um, who gave me the idea that I could create free content in little bite-sized pieces that could be really relatable and easy to understand. And it was well ahead of anybody doing it. So like I said, sometimes just ideas pop into my head in the middle of the night or first thing in the morning or when I'm walking. And look where it's got me. I think what's really lovely from what you say is that that approach or that perspective of not allowing anyone to uh, be negative about whether it's teachers or parents but rather seeking an understanding and 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 getting your uh, mindset 
from that space to look at the problem and therefore not seeing it as a blame on someone, but rather, you know, how can we do this better? And, and obviously that's where I'm hearing has informed a lot of your work. It, it's not trying to, to go out and point the finger, but rather, you know, examine it and, and, and be considerate and saying, well, how do we, how do we solve this? How do we look at this? How do we understand it? And, and that's something that's, oh, I think, really beautiful in what you do. I think also um, I accidentally, while I was an at-home mum, ended up <clears throat> stumbling into a couple of other experiences that helped shape me. I'd always wanted to be a newsreader and the ABC was looking for something in Albany and WA, which is the bottom of the state, you know, it was a long way away. And um, they wanted to have someone who could look after some afternoon sessions. And I thought, I could probably do that. That's only a few hours. Um, And so that little taster in that space was lovely in terms of what I do now. But um, it meant I got to meet other interesting people coming in sharing stories. And then also I ended up volunteering um, in the at the beginning of the Albany Hospice, which was obviously, you know, palliative care is a, an area I never thought I'd ever step into because I thought that would have to be the most depressing work on the planet. And, of course, that was in terms of my passion for resilience and how do we navigate this strange dance called life, a really good place to learn about it is at the end of it. And um, I, I kind of you know, accidentally realised that I was really good at feeling comfortable in that space. And I don't know if it's because I was the farm kid and we had a lot of dead animals. I'm not quite sure. But I was, it was It was just something that, yeah. So I became basic, basically a death doula around the edges. Not only did we support families before, during and after, but if a family wanted to have a loved one die at home, then you know, we could facilitate that. And you're exactly right. If you build the understanding of what may be going to happen and prepare people, then they're much braver in that moment. And and then I ended up working in the funeral industry. So um, I kind of, I did everything in the funeral industry from, you know, preparing bodies to um, uh, driving coaches and stretch limousine hearses, making sure you don't knock a headstone over. Um, and then I saw there were some pretty terrible ceremonies of farewell. So I was already an authorised marriage celebrant. So I started doing funeral ceremonies. And that really is an incredibly powerful place to learn how people navigate such adversity. And it was the most uplifting work, you know, I could possibly ever do. And that kind of brought through with my work when I work with families is so we help you understand that there's no perfect journey if you have children you're not going to run around in a field of daisies because there will be prickles and some days it's going to be freezing and other days it's going to be glorious with a you know full moon arising you know what I mean I kind of wanted parents to realize you can't do perfect parenting because we're humans and living in systems like families um, you know, we don't all get it right. And we have days when we don't feel good, especially when you're sleep deprived. So helping them be more realistic in appreciating that there are gifts and challenges in every stage of our kids' lives and our own. Holy heck, I ended up in perimenopause with a 14-year-old who was incredibly challenging. <laughs> we couldn't remember anything either way. Um and so I, I, I think that's what I've been able to do, create a, um, a, a way of being more realistic and understanding that um, you're not a lousy parent, you're not a lousy human, 
Um, and when we work together, um, we can help overcome things. I think I kept finding parents wanting to fix too much and do too much, the same as I saw organisations when they went out and worked in some of our scattered communities with our First Nations people. They wanted to walk in there and just do stuff without working with them. And I think that's probably, I hope, what I've been able to do because I, I listen very deeply to the voices, not only of children and teens and parents, um, but educators and those who work in the field of allied health. Because I think when we're all on the same page, we've got a better chance of us helping get through the toughest things, particularly, you know, traumatic events like an ongoing pandemic. That really resonates for me in terms of the attitude of trying to fix you know in order for there to be fixed there has to be a problem there has to be a diagnosis there has to be something that we can categorize as being you know bad and and it's such a different space of saying this isn't necessarily about fixing if we kind of shift that paradigm you know maybe we move across more to a process you know parenting is a is a process and children go through phases i'm a i'm a young sort of uh father myself and and i i i can see how this is only stage one of a of an entire life of being a parent <laughs> and, and you know as much as i i know very little um in many ways i probably don't need to know that much uh, no. you know that that being nurturing and, and and trying to actually being curious, trying to understand, being curious, trying to figure it out, um, yeah. it probably allows me to to pick up some of those things. It doesn't mean that I can't approach yeah. people like yourself, or you know, read yeah. your books or other good, yeah. you know, uh, look up other good blogs and and podcasts. But um, uh, it, it, it's very process. So when you say you know fixing, whether it's from teachers or parents, that that really resonates because I think yeah. there's a huge difference in those two distinctions oh look and it's really interesting because every now and then I'm, I'm apparently highly recognizable <laughs> regardless of where I am or whether I've got makeup on or not or matching shoes because I'm a bit um prone to not matching my shoes um and just recently I was at a really huge uh, early childhood conference on the Gold, on Gold Coast which is a mac spectacular event every well obviously hasn't been there for three years where you know they really do dive into what we need them to know in that early window of life and I had so many come up to me and say um your this book and the one that this woman said my husband and I use it as a bible from boys to men helping them understand their teen son that has been a game changer in our house when we're struggling with him, we go back and check the index on your book and, oh, and we look at different ways of communicating or different ways of understanding why he is disengaging, why he's angry. And then we work, we have these conversations after we've fed him. Um, and you know what? Look, things just settled down so much quicker. We were just stumbling around in the dark. And then I'll run into a mum who says, mothering our boys changed my life. I had no idea how different. I was raised in a family of girls with an only mum no idea. And your book just lifted the light for me. And I have this beautiful relationship um, with my son. And I just want to thank you for that. So you're right that, you know, when we stumble along and not sure, and we want to find some solutions, I don't offer a, a one size fits all solution. I'll offer a whole heap of things that give you insight into what may be under that 
And so often when I'm on radio, people ring up and say, oh, my, you know, my three-year-old is so, you know, and I'll go, you do realise that is developmentally absolutely normal and important. And they'll just go, is it? <laughs> and I, 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 you know, that, oh, my God, is that? Okay, yes. Because if a child's not striving for their own autonomy, they're not going to become an individuated human, which means they'll be their own person later. This is exactly what has been happening since we started having these little cherubs. Now, I'll give you a couple of suggestions that may make that a little easier, but I want you to know that's happening in all homes. You're not failing. And uh, go make yourself a cuppa and sit down and eat a Tim Tam whenever it's going down because, you know, the calmer you are, you know, the whole experience is going to be easier for both of you. And that's a big, big part as well of, of, of having some reassurance that we're doing the right, the yes. right job. I know that um, uh, Matthew Sanders speaking with him about the Triple P program and, and so much about that is, is also about just trying to you know, regulate, you know, just, just sort of pumping the brakes, so to speak, being settled and grounded yourself. You know, that is, is, is a good position or platform to begin to try and understand our, our, our children, you know, and say, what are their needs? Why might, they, why, why might they be, you know, acting out or maybe not even acting out, just behaving that way because it's not necessarily acting out. It's, it's behaving and trying to express themselves in a particular way. And, and for us as parents, we're trying to decode what might that mean and, and why is that coming up right now or, you know, what's the secondary gain that's coming from there or how am I reinforcing or what am I reinforcing and so on. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a maze, but I think that curiosity helps and, and you know, you've got, you've got that in spades. I think the other thing that a lot of parents, we're coming from the, you know, behaviourism, you know, influences. And I was raised at a really tough time where, you know, obviously children were being naughty. They needed to be shamed or smacked or sent outside or whatever, you know, and the changes in, um, you know, um, the science of child development has been really helpful. But one of the key ones too is even your teenager doesn't necessarily have an intentionality between the choices of calling you a deadhead and telling you to where to go. You know, that, that, the, it's deliberately choosing to be naughty. That's the that's the transition. I think as we're getting through this, that we we all behave badly when we're flooded with cortisol. Let's be honest. Um, and I think that's 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 kind of taking a lot of time. We know it's you know we know that when we recognise. I I really agree with uh, Dr. Ross Green that really basically kids will behave well if they can. And I noticed that in my classrooms that. Um, the more welcoming my classroom, the more inclusive my classrooms, the friendlier I was, um, I had less behaviour issues, even from the kids who I knew were struggling because they were basically illiterate or they had ADHD. When I created a classroom that wasn't stressful, their behaviour was easily much noticeably different. And I did have some teachers who were very old school challenging me, saying, I just kick them out when they like that. And I'm going, what are they learning? How are they learning skills to be able to navigate your classroom if that's the only option and you do it within seconds? I don't, you know, and the kids are sitting outside classrooms. So often they were First Nations kids. Um, and I, I just, you know, instinctively knew that we can work with these kids to build those levels. And obviously, you know, I was a bit weird because I started doing um, 
mindfulness, which wasn't called that in the olden days. I just knew because I'd actually had a panic attack on ABC radio <laughs> at one point when I, before I went back full-time teaching. And um, it sent me on a journey of understanding anxiety. And so I started bringing that into classrooms. You know, we do deep breathing and we do visualisations before we did our major assessments. We'd have a 10 or 12-minute relaxation after lunch on the floor. And I started seeing such a shift in behaviour, but also, wait for it, educational outcomes. I saw kids thinking more deeply because they weren't so stressed. I saw them... um, you know, just, I just couldn't believe it because I was only doing it to make the classrooms less noisy. And and that really started a whole different thing for me. So when I write, you know, the first book, Saving Our Children, um, <clears throat> I aimed it for parents, but I also aimed it for teachers who are, who are interested in maybe stress is, is contributing to a, an unpleasant classroom environment. And, um, I, and when I wrote it, I was waiting. Oh, my God, Nash, I was waiting for a teacher to kind of contact me and say that book's full of rubbish or a psychologist because, of course, none of this had any science behind it, no evidence behind it at that stage. Oh, you're just some woo-woo fluffy or a parent. And it was so funny. I was kind of about a month in and I had a principal um, email me and say, look, I just wish every parent would read this book. And then I had parents saying, I wish every teacher would read this book. And then I had some psychologists who I, you know, had known who work in schools saying, this is gold. Um, And then, of course, eventually we were able to show it, aren't we, that um, mindfulness is absolutely incredibly important for lowering anxiety and stress. Um, So it was kind of sweet being validated well after it was. Um, And there are times, you know, when I was working in in my um, counselling room, and I explore this quite a bit in the um, the latest book I've written, which is called Girlhood, because I found that if I used, you know, I'd already done some work in NLP, um, neuro-linguistic programming, so I knew language is important. I'd already done some art therapy work, and I had also done some tapping, which is really at the edge by then by a psychologist in WA called um, Steve Wells. And every now and then I'd kind of weave that in amongst the therapy, but the changes that were happening were like, I'd often only need to see them once. Parents thought I was a bit like a witch, I think. But when I changed the video in a child's head, and, of course, girls are incredibly imaginative. Um, I'll give you a really simple example. I did some work. um, This girl was really quite sad, particularly at home, and her, you know, they'd taken it to a GP and, um, you know, they were quite concerned. She was pretty well coming up with all the flags for a depression for a five-year-old anyway when she came um I did so I will do I do color breathing with them so they can pretend they can breathe out whatever the yucky feelings they have um and afterwards I still felt mm, I wasn't feeling right anyway I have a, a magic wand and I said to this little five-year-old girl I said if you do you believe in magic she said yes I said well this is my magic wand I said if you could do abracadabra and you could wish away whatever's making you sad, would you like to do that? She said, oh, yes, I would. And so she got it and she went, Ebracadabra, I just wish my daddy would play with me sometimes. And, um, you know, she had a loving dad. He just wasn't into it. And it was well before Bluey, of course, which would teach you how to do that, um, which was so easily fixed. 
And that little girl's dad was able to turn up a few times a week and that little girl just bounced back into being a happy little girl. And I thought, wow, look at that weave between, you know, the imagination and real, you know, and that's, we know that. And um, mm. so that's kind of what led me also to the visualisations. I ended up in 1998 winning a rotary scholarship for <clears throat> study kind of thing. So I ended up at Jack Canfield's um, facilitating school seminar in Santa Barbara in America. Can you believe that from this little girl from the bush? Anyway, um, it was a full on, like we worked from nine till probably nine most night doing all sorts of techniques and strategies. And um, it was the second time I'd, I'd been using relaxations, visualizations, but I hadn't used them to change behavior. And I was really fascinated. Um, and there was one from Gerald Topolsky, who was quite a well-known guy at the time, about um, um, improving children's reading if you change their negative attitude in their head. And um, so that was one I kind of went back with. But I also ended up with a class of year nines, very um, at, not so much at risk, but just completely disengaged. There was about 15 boys they basically worn out every teacher who had them. So I'd come back from America and said, okay, I've got them for a term. Um, and I started every Monday morning, they would do a visualisation when they took home their best report card ever because they'd never taken one home. So how can you take home something when your expectation is in the opposite direction? You know, I just went to basic, you know, basic psychology. Um, so I did this visualisation where they saw themselves holding a report card with grades they'd never gotten. I didn't take them from Fs to As. I took them to Cs and Bs. I wasn't stretching it too far. But then there were the comments that no one ever said about them. So I made sure they were on it. And they saw themselves take that report card and take it into their parents. And they saw their parents' faces. And when they did it, no matter how many times in that, we did it for about eight weeks, their faces, just you see their faces change as their parents are showing pride in them for the first time. And then at the end, they had to take it into their room and pin it on their board and went, I did this. Anyway, so we were doing that. They were not letting anybody know in the playground what was going on. They just said she lets us have a rest on Mondays because it was so weird. And they're boys. They don't want to go, well, she's woo-woo. Um, and then about week four, I had a couple of maths teachers come up to me and said, what are you doing with those grommets? You know, what, what are you doing? Because they started to hand work in. And I went, oh, serious? <laughs> maths work, right? Anyway, next time I had them, I said, um, Hey, so I've just been had a whisper that some of you boys are handing in your mass work. And I said, took one of the boys said, Yeah, God, I am. I'll never normally do that. And that's when what happens. So, what happens when you change the expectation of the student? You change the expectation of the teacher. So then teachers are more engaged with, they want more of that juice. And um, it was just, it was stunning, really, because that was literally, they had to still do their five assessments with me, but before they did it, they they turned all their brain buttons on, whatever that means. They, in other words, got prepared mentally for it. They saw the possibility of doing well. Um, anyway, they all got the best report cards I'd ever had in their lives, and um, I'd promised them a chocolate frog if it failed. That was enough. I mean, I still gave them the chocolate frogs, but when they came into the class on that last day, and show me those report cards. I just burst into tears. Um, one lad had gone from like literally, far, he's actually really, really bright, which is so pissed off at everything and everyone. Um, he ended up 
being sent off to an elite private school and which had a cricket program that he was really interested in. So he just, and then what was really interesting was I run into those boys over the years before I left that town who can still remember that they stay safe in them. Um, if I want to do something, I see it in my head first. I still do that. So I knew we could do more than we do. Um, and so that's why I've continued on that journey. You know, <clears throat> I've got a whole heap of them. Um, uh, Calming the Angry Ant was a, is a really popular one with um, angry little boys in, you know, from K to probably year three. But it actually calms girls down as well as teachers. So you can see once again, we can create you know, crazy things that can make differences. Another one that's incredibly popular is I'm a good friend because not all kids have picked up the social cues, particularly our neurodivergent kids. And um, I had a teacher who has um, some very difficult uh, little boys who are in a very low socioeconomic areas, lots of gang stuff in the area. And in the visualisation, she'd used it a couple of times. Um, they pretend they have a puppy on their tummy to start with and that they stroke because we wanted them to get a sensation of what it feels like to be cared for because for so many that hasn't happened. Anyway, um, and she said to me, um, you know, it worked brilliantly for the, except for these three boys. So she went and got a, a stuffed toy for them because I couldn't do the pretend imaginary. So those three little boys had a pretend stuffed toy on their chest and then they basically go into a, the classroom with the same feeling on their face, the smile on their face, and they greet kids. So we do some welcoming and farewell strategies. We talk about sometimes being a good friend means we don't always go first or we let our friends go first or sometimes, you know, um, be careful not to be too bossy, which, of course, with me. Anyway, um, she, she said to me, as soon as I got that little stuffed toy, those three little boys were right onto it. And she said, we've just changed their whole social dynamic. Um, she said, and it just... You know, as she said, it's just brought pure joy to my whole class that every now and then you'll hear a voice say, but that's not being a good friend. Um, but also she said a big message in it, and I just want to thank you for that, is that they need to be a good friend to themselves. And I think that sometimes, you know, what are we doing in psychology is helping people learn to love and accept themselves as they are. And sometimes that's hard, but when you've got five- and six-year-old boys who, you know, um, are forever getting busted for their impulsivity and their inappropriate sometimes toilet humour and, you know, farting in the wrong places. It's lovely that suddenly someone's saying it's okay, you know, to, you need to be kind to yourself. You need to like who you are, even if sometimes you make poor choices. So sorry that was a long-winded answer, but I just felt I wanted to give you a couple of examples of what kind of blew my head away kind of while I was still in the classroom. No, Maggie. Thank, thank you for speaking so, so, uh, so in so much detail at length. Because what, what it really, I think, exemplifies is that it's not that you have any uh, expert strategy, but you're an expert in throwing strategies that are informed, that are considered, and by virtue of doing that is you'll go to a course, you'll pick up those skills or you'll learn from your own experience and say, how does it apply to another context? And the fact that you're being deliberate in doing something different, you're then taking feedback from that and once again, tweaking that over and over until I think, you know, we can clearly say you are an expert, but not in the strategy, but rather in the process. And, and, and that's what I'm hearing is, is, is really the, you know, 
uh, immense uh, value that you bring, you know, with your books and your podcast. I spoke, uh, I listened to one of your podcasts about a gentleman talking about his his son was finding it really difficult, um, being quite critical of himself in trying to be perfectionistic. And, and uh, you spoke about how the father could uh, model um making errors not getting it right and and interestingly my daughter's uh, very perfectionistic and from a very young age she started to uh, scrunch up her artwork and throw it in the bin you know she was trying to get it right and i remember sitting there on so many occasions scribbling out of the lines next to her um, which <laughs> let me tell you is not easy for me because I have that, that conscientious perfectionistic streak. Um, I wonder where she so, got it from. <laughs> and so I was working at it and, and, you know, that, that, that stuff pays off and I didn't know it was going to work, but you just, you, you need to be throwing something and at least be informed at a level. And, and the way that you just spoke about it, you know, it really sings to that and, and it's beautiful because, you know, the expert keeps trying and keeps trying to be informed and and that's what you're providing with all these books and podcasts and videos and so on and uh, uh i think there's a lot to be said about the process and 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 the attitude um you know the validating attitude also that has to come with that process that uh you know is, is very um liberating uh, that you know we're not here to get it right we're we're we're, we're here to you know continue on that process and and, and try and be um, you know, try to be parents and, 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 you know, not a good one, not a bad one. We, we, we're trying to continue to do our parenting. And yeah. obviously when we're frustrated, you know, it's not easy to, to do that, but that's okay too, because that's a part of it as well. And, and once again, kids need to see that also, you know, you know, how we resolve our own frustrations is important too. Oh, look, I think one other thing, we really need to get much better at celebrating the gifts that can come with um, failing, you know, and I, <clears throat> I've, you know, I've written a lot of blogs around this that, you know, it, we all think that's a sign that, you know, we've, we're not, we've not hit the mark. And, you know, with mistake, what it eventually meant was you've just missed the target temporarily. Like um, when kids have got parents who model that now and not, you know, into even from a very early age when they spill their milk or they, you know, whatever, that we go, whoops, the daisy, let's, how are we going to clean that up? You know, like we just don't do that over the top. Um, and the same with, you know, a failed test and things like that. I know that we can feel disappointed because our child's not suddenly performing, but we have to celebrate that the, the ability to recover from a disappointment uh, or a failure or a setback is, is a process again, isn't it? And um, I, I really celebrate the fact that, what we want is for when our kids are teens and they will make some poor choices that are really challenging to them and they're in that risky window where we know, um, you know, they can make impulsive poor choices around intentional self-harm, that it, rather than that they can lean back on a grown-up who's failed in front of them many times. Um, you know, I, I do, I look at that with my own sons. There were times they crashed cars and, did things that I wish they hadn't done, but they reached out for me. And um, that's that's when you know, you know, we've got there in that space. When we put too much pressure on and you know that that's exactly what's coming up in the every nearly every year in the Mission Australia Youth Survey is that that pressure 
the anxiety is one thing and stress managing it, but the pressure to perform at school, like we want them to have, we want our kids to do well. But when we put too much pressure and we are a little unrealistic because they're dealing with a very different world than what we had, there's much more nastiness out there. there there's more capacity for them to have um, a sense of feel, living in a safe, secure world. Many of them are really worried that is there going to be one. They are really concerned about climate. They're really concerned about the war in Ukraine. They're really concerned about um, suicide. And yet <clears throat> if we don't have grown-ups who allow them to have these big conversations who they can lean on without having to do a lecture in the middle of it, um, how do they prepare themselves to step out off into the big wide world? You know, one of my biggest things around resilience is what are their life skills? What are we putting in their kit bag for life? I've called it the kit bag for 20 years. <clears throat> um, if you've got skills in that kit bag, your chances of surviving adversity are so much higher. But if you have to, you know, as soon as you walk out the door, ring or, you know, text your mum about um, where, where's this, what's that? I had sons who weren't really good at remembering stuff. And the hardest thing I had when they kind of gradually left, you know, one by one to live in um, Perth, which is, you know, five hours from Albany, to go to uni, was I wasn't around the corner. So I consciously knew that to learn how to navigate the social world of parties and things, they would need to be in it. But I didn't actually let them out until they were in year 11, the year they turned 16. So I also knew about brain and I knew the brain under 16 is a lot more dicey than the one over. Uh, they didn't like that um, and they did escape to a few parties which they think I didn't know about, which is also what teens are supposed to do. Um, but I wanted them to navigate that journey before they got to Perth uh, at a university. Hello, you, you know, there's a whole different world if you've got, you know, young people. Um, I wanted them to make the mistakes while I could still pick them up. I wanted them to know there were some clear guidelines and I had conversations with them you know, which was interesting because it was just intuitive. Um, when they went to parties, I had some clear rules. You don't get in a car with anyone who's been drinking. Yep. And um, you, if, you, if you're worried, you call me, I'll pick you up or I'm going to get you to pick up with the cab or you walk home, right? And the other one, big one, my overarching one was watch out for your mates. I want you to watch out for your mates. It's such an important thing. I don't want you to just be such a selfish person. It's just about you. I want you to, the number of times they called me because one of their mates was in problem. The number of times that I heard many months later how they had supported a, a young person who was, you know, in a, in a vulnerable position. Um, and the other one was, what do you do if? Because I wanted to see, you know, they're not, they're not thick. They do know a fair bit. Um, what are you going to do if one of your friends falls on the ground in an alcoholic coma? Um, what are you going to do? You know, and I talked to them about, we just put them in a recovery position and call an ambulance straight away. I don't care where you are. Don't mess around. You can die. And I taught kids for years when I was still working with them in school systems. This is, you become the, I call it the silent protector. You know, you pinch the car keys from the boys who are going to go, likely to do burnouts and hide them somewhere. You call an ambulance if that happens. And there have been two different occasions that young people have contacted me later to say, thank you for telling me about that um, alcoholic coma because um, I was at a party and my one of the guys there just flaked out on the ground. I knew he wasn't asleep, put him in the recovery position, called an ambo. And when the paramedic was actually getting them into the ambulance, he turned and said, who called the ambulance? 
And this kid put his hand up and he said, I just said, how come you you called? Because it doesn't happen often. And he said, oh, I had someone who told me it was really important. He said, well, do you realise he's two minutes away from death? You've just saved this kid's life. And I've had that happen twice. So I believe when we empower teens to be the rescuers and to be the helpers rather than just doom and gloom on them, we give them the capacity that I think is inside every human to step up and do the right thing. Um, and I don't know that we call on that enough. I think we keep calling on the doom and gloom. And I, I'm really passionate about giving them those life skills. Um, you know, what do you do if you come across a car accident? We know the unsafest part of it, going to a party is how you get home. I have worked in communities after four young people have been killed in a car accident following a party. My own son's lost two of their mates um, following a car accident. And um, those weeks afterwards were really tough for them and their teachers and I work with the staff um, because I've got to do so much in the death and dying space. But I wanted that trauma to not only be something they overcome eventually, but I wanted to make sure it leaves um, a benefit in their life and the number of them that, you know, are so different. My sons are very different from then on. You know, they go to funerals and they 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 can cry with their mates. There's no more of this blocking it up because boys don't cry. They turn up and check in on their mates. You know, they do the things that they've learned because they've gone through that awful experience and people have guided them and let them know this was okay. Um, and even one of them, you know, one of the groups, um, about a month afterwards, I knew they were still struggling a fair bit, but they their mates were surfers and they were all surfers and they wanted to have a night on a on a beach and um I know a lot of the parents are really worried you know basically this could end up badly um but we we facilitated it so they had a big bonfire we checked with the council could they have a bonfire we had parents turn up with burgers at 11 o'clock at night um you know and blankets because some forgot to get them um we turned up with breakfast next day you know they just they just needed some solo kind of space under a starry night sky to kind of put a bit more ritual on, on their terms for the farewell of those two beautiful mates. Um, yeah, and, I, you know, like I said, at the end of the day, when we can take those adverse moments and, you know, work with them in a way that they feel they've still got agency in the process of the, of the grief rather than people telling them how they should grieve. Um, yeah, I hope that makes sense it resonates at uh, so many levels because it, it it really goes out and empowers young people to make those decisions and and do what's right for them and and also it recognizes they have capacity to make good choices and and by saying look after your mates that, that that's a whole cultural idea that's not a do not get into a vehicle with a drunk person, which is still good advice, uh, but it, it's a different, it's a, because it, it overarches every scenario and every scenario can have a look after your mates. And it could be preempting that they're already drinking too much, that you might slow them down or distract them. It might be that someone's emotionally upset. So you go out and check in and say, Hey, how are you going? Could be that you just go out and give someone, a, you know, some water when they need to, someone's fallen over. So you go out and, you know, uh, uh, bandage them up or, you know, yeah. brush off their, their greys, irrespective of what it is that, that, that there's a real uh, capacity building exercise going in there by saying, look after your mates and, and yeah. 
in another way of saying, you know, how do you want to uh, grieve your loved one, you know, and then and they get to choose that as well. And and yes, you know, parents can still facilitate that. Let's go and take those measures. Let's bring burgers late at night so they're, they're fed, that, you know, there's not too much alcohol involved. Let's yeah. make sure they've got something yeah. warm over them because we don't want them to freeze, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It kind of says we can do this in a really respectful way, but in your way, you know. Um, I, I also think something really important is, um, um you know, if that's your first experience of death as a close mate uh, or friend, you know, and girls have got to be even more cautious of because sometimes they're biologically wired to want to rescue their friends and they forget about themselves and that can end up, you know, not being a healthy thing. But um, <clears throat> I really think you've got to let your kids experience um, death or around it, not protect them. So how many families have said, oh, no, we sent the dog off to the farm when they had it put down because they didn't want to upset their kids? Upset them before five. Get the guinea pig and hope it dies because I know that, you know, the children that I work with around death and dying, while I was driving a coach or I was preparing a ceremony, the ones who had been through a death of a loved one in terms of mainly pets but maybe a grandparent, they handled those losses as troubled and <laughs> emotional teens so much better. And um, <clears throat> it just came to mind this beautiful 14-year-old boy and their family that I worked with when I was still in Albany. And the boy had developed this aggressive tumour on his shoulder blade that was just so rare. Um, and it took about eight months before it killed him. And yet we watched... Um, his friends, he had two girl mates and two boy mates turn up most afternoons after school. Uh, they got a king-size bed so they could all sit on the bed. <clears throat> they watched his favourite things on TV and footy and stuff and they had this open conversation. He could talk to them, you know, about the treatments he was having and showing him where the port went for the, you know, chemo and it wasn't hidden and I still remember, um, you know, it's about he was getting weaker and we knew things were going downhill. And he said to me, Maggie, can we get my coffin delivered into my bedroom before I die? You know, for a 14-year-old lad. And I said, we could organise that. I said, what colour do you want it? And he said, I want Ferrari red. <laughs> so we got this Ferrari red coffin <clears throat> delivered. And he asked his best mates, to write stuff all over it. So this just was written all over, right? And um, I still remember this because it really tears me up a bit. But on the funeral day, the funeral was kind of led by his best friends rather than growing ups. I kind of facilitated around the edges. But one of the friends got up and said, you'll notice that there are messages written all over this casket. And he <clears throat> looked down at the mum and dad and said, um, he's asked, um, He's asked us to tell you that he's written a very special message for you at that end that they didn't know about. So to be told from beyond, beyond death um, how much you are loved by a 14-year-old boy, just it took me days really to be able to, to see that we underestimate them so often, uh, but with the right people guiding you on the toughest journeys of life, um, it facilitates healing on the other side that, you know, um, that boy just transformed so many lives. Um, 
yeah, it was, it was, like I said, it was such an honour and a privilege to be part of that journey. And um, he taught me so much. Like I said, you don't always learn your greatest lessons in life from textbooks or courses. You learn them from other humans if you're prepared to be humble enough to step back and, and listen with an open heart. And, um, yeah, mm. it was uh, one of those beautiful journeys where um, everything I knew about death flipped upside down again. Um, and I think, um, you know, that that the, the importance of celebrating and honouring lives at funerals rather than just farewelling them was something we had to kind of flip over a bit and it took quite a lot of time. And nowadays, you know, um, gosh, you can laugh a lot at a funeral now and the music can have you wanting to dance in the aisles. Like we've really learned that only two of the three things around a farewell ceremony hurt. <laughs> I mean, are good and the other one hurts. So it's the farewell part, but it's the celebration and honouring that can just fill your heart um, with such joy. And I do remember Teen saying to me at one point, why do they have a party after you've had a funeral, Maggie? And I said, it's not really just a party. So what a wake really is about is about a safe kind of space for the people who really love and respect that person to share stories that they can't fit into a ceremony to just hug people because sometimes we haven't got enough words, you know, and um, I can still remember that with some of the ones I did where a young lad has died who was in a football team and a football club, which can be a place that can be a bit, you know, um, man boxy, you know, about toughness and, you know, alcohol and everything. And yet when someone dies, they can often do it unbelievably well. And the, the line of honour that his coffin was marched through with all these young boys in their footy jumpers was just, you know, and nobody told them as it got to the chapel door to clap, but a couple of the boys started clapping and that took it to another level of celebrating as that boy was coming in for his final farewell ceremony. Um yeah, it was, yeah, like I said, there were those moments that as humans we can be uplifted in the most adverse situations. And I still keep saying adversity is not all bad, you know, like am I an, an incredibly resilient human because of my experiences on the farm? Probably. But also um, I wasn't, um, we had to work on the farm. We were part of the free labour. Um, no one could shift all the sheep or, you know, like, pick up rocks and do burning off without all us kids helping. Like, is that where my work ethic came from? Um, or is that where it came on that says we just pitch in and do it because that's what we do to help our, our family and our system? You know, when I hear of families where kids don't do any chores, you know, there's a part of me there. <laughs> yep, we know the research is strong in that area, that the kids who do regular chores tend to turn out better because they're you know, they help us. They're, they're doing what needs to happen to help our family and a system survive. We're biologically wired, though, and Ness, I'd love your thoughts on this too. We're biologically wired to live as social beings. So I'm, I'm, I'm a little concerned that our digital natives today, especially those who are marinated in, um, you know, endless gaming, <clears throat> hours of pornography or endless contacting via screens, how are they going to be able to thrive in intimate relationships as adults? Are they just going to do it through their phones? I, I'm, I'm just worried. We're not sitting around tables talking. We're not having as much conversation. 
little children aren't having as much face, face time as they've had before. Are we, are we changing humanity and is that just a different way of being in relationships? I, I know it's a big question, but I am. Mm. I'm a little bit worried. Yeah, look, I I um I agree with 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 you. It, it's it's concerning. Uh, I have a, an extremely optimistic streak in me, so I, I so tend to I. just just believe <laughs> that things will work out, and that um you know uh, I'm sure the previous generations were absolutely terrified about the you know the miniskirts and you know the tvs and the radios going to you know take everyone away from each other and so on um i think our biology is so strong that yes this might be a great shift but whether we like it or not we are still human and so we just gravitate to that. I know here in our practice, as much as tele, as much as we provide telehealth, our clients do not choose telehealth. No. They they come back, and this is during the entire COVID period. So yeah. we gave the options. People would rather cancel an appointment uh, than do it via tele, and it doesn't mean that tele isn't useful and it doesn't mean that telly doesn't have a space particularly rural and 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 in places where you can't easily access a psychologist or or other other services but we want to have a human experience and so i i think we will just naturally gravitate has the world changed we're staring at our phones all the time yes absolutely will that have an effect you bet i mean the, the research will show that um uh, will that change? We can things? still send lots of oh, yeah. love messages, and can't we? You know what I mean? Across the board, I couldn't communicate with my teen sons because I didn't have phones when they were around about. But I know that there are parents who, you know, send great messages to their, their kids everywhere. And I thought I would have loved that when they were at uni. Um, yeah, yeah, so you're absolutely right, and I I do believe having got back on the road in the last month, the hunger. At mm. conferences, the hunger in our restaurants and cafes and markets is palpable. Does it matter? <laughs> We've all got some of us still have to wear masks because we're a little bit worried of flu and everything. No, it doesn't. But there is an absolute palpable hunger for us to have humans around again. And um, I, yeah, I do believe that our families and our neighborhoods is the key to moving forward. And I know there are lots of families that have changed the way that they run their families as a consequence of having gone through lockdowns where um, kids now have neighbourhood friends they didn't have before because they were all in lockdown. Um, Other families have also chosen to not do a weekend sport because the kids really loved going on treks or long bike rides with their folks um, and they're going to keep doing that. So I thought, yeah, we just got to work out what works for our family how do we make it work for our family instead of just looking around at what everyone else is doing? What works best for our family that allows us to have the strongest sense of loving connection and enjoy being together, whatever that may be. So if you enjoyed making sourdough, just knock yourself out, really. I've just gone back to pikelets. They're a lot easier. But I do think just, just having the conversations for, around the dining table from time to time about What's working in our family and what's not? And how can we problem solve the stuff that's not working? Because I think that put it out on the table. Don't make parents always having to solve the problems. Let's work through some solutions together while we eat ice cream. <laughs> yeah, look, I think, I think that, that, that's one of the, 
you know, profound things that I see in the work that you do is that you're tabling all these conversations with young people. And so the question around screen time is, you know, most likely best to be done with those young people and say, what do you think is most appropriate? And I've, I've heard you give that type of advice and yeah. at, at, at different levels and for different topics. And, and it's, it's incredible. And this is what, you know, obviously, you know, a teaching probably 101 in, in a dip ed goes out and it says, it says involve the classroom, let them set the rules of the classroom and, and, and then they own it. And, um, and I remember as a young, young man, you know, when I was a young boy, when I was growing up, the teachers that said, what do we want the classroom yep. rules to be? I had no idea that they were running the show and that, you know, I, <laughs> I thought that I was somehow contributing um, but I was, and I was owning it because it was mine rather than theirs. And any time we stepped over the mark, they would pull that in because it would be unreasonable. But they still allowed us, you know, to have a, you know, a, a, a enough enough um, responsibility and, and, and ownership. And I think, you know, yeah. scream time would be probably another one. And and. Yeah. and Every parent would do it different. Some would say an hour a day. Some will say three hours a day. Others will say only on weekends. I don't know what the rules are. I don't know how it works. I think I think we can all work it out. But uh, it is it is still concerning because we don't know how to do it yet. We're we're all still grappling with it. You know whether yeah. it's educators, whether it's parents. and who would have thought? You know here we are having this chat, um, and it was interesting because um, I was actually able to use. Um, the online platform to reach so many more people during the pandemic. I mean, some of my webinars, we had people sign up from places like Peru, Paraguay, Afghanistan, Chile, um, you know, like Poland. Um, And then the other thing that also happened was because I had that balanced view, I was running one called Parenting in a Pandemic where, you know, I was giving parents some context around you have your children home who are supposed to be online learning. You are supposed to be working full-time. You may have two parents. I'm just going to give you some practical things around that. You just can't do it all, right? Anyway, it took off like randomly. And all of a sudden I had about 80 schools wanting to run it. So I contacted the New South Wales um, Primary Principals Association and said, um, how about you pay me to do one and you just send it out to as many schools as you like? And um, he thought that's such a good idea. Now, 265 schools signed up within two hours, which takes it to 10,000 on the platform. So he contacted me. I said, yeah, sure, I'll do it twice. No problem. And the feedback they got afterwards was the reassurance didn't just go to parents. It went to teachers as well. For that They were being recognised that how difficult this was and that we can do pockets of this really well. We just can't do 100% all of it. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. And we're also living in a time of fear and we're also all far more stressed than we normally are. So that common sense that I guess I am called the queen of common sense apparently really did resonate right across the board. And that was lucky. I couldn't have done that without the digital platform. So there there are these unexpected gifts that every now and then turn up that I go, oh, that's, that's kind of handy. But you're absolutely right that um, I don't think it'll ever, you know, it's it's how do we how do we use it to our advantage? Mm, and mm. you're right that parents say to me, what's the how many hours is okay for kids? And I go, it's what you're doing with it. 
It's what you're doing with. It's a, such a difference if you're you're doing with your daughter how to draw a unicorn um, uh, little thingamajiggy, which is fantastic because I've done it with one of my granddaughters, than um, doing a game where they're getting rewarded. So we're building a kind of hunger for be a gambler later because the dopamine receptor system <laughs> dopamine receptor system gets over agitated, or they're needing to be entertained every second. That's different. Yeah, and are Absolutely. you with them? Are you doing it? Because I know there's lots of parents who got that message during the pandemic who now sit down with their kids when they're doing Minecraft and get really engaged in the whole creativity of the under underside of it, right? So it hasn't become this giant enemy. It's, again, what can we do together that helps me understand the joy you get from that? And then guess what? We're going out on the trampoline. Oh, we're going to walk the dog. Oh, we're going to get outside and climb a tree. Right, it's the displacement effect that I think when you recognise that, um, particularly in the early years, then we can address those without necessarily doing the the blame shame game. Because um, I'm just like I said, I'm a huge fan of TV over the handheld device um, for as long as possible for all the reasons that I've already touched on. Plus, um, that means they can sit on Nanny's lap and we can watch Bluey together, or um, you know. Sometimes it's all about dinosaurs. You won't believe what I know about dinosaurs, thanks to one of my <laughs> grandsons. Um, so follow a passion for sure. Um, but if there's there's a place where, and yes, you will have a techno tantrum if you take something off a child who's enjoying it. Try taking one of my murder crime mystery books off me while I'm engaged and you'll get a tantrum <laughs> from me as well. Like, let's be real about those things. Yeah. Um, and thankfully, I, you know, we're getting lots more information around how it is actually shaping possibly our brain in not a positive way with um, too much of it, particularly um, either the gaming side for boys, delaying the prefrontal growth, but also we know the harm that can be happening from too much of Instagram for our girls and that whole body image stuff. So we've got the, there's evidence out there already that shows we need to address some of those concerns. We can't just, whoop, off you go. Um, and I do think one of the best pieces of advice is that we have any devices are out in the main area of the house, not the bedroom, um, because <clears throat> no one's going to take a photograph of their private parts in the lounge room. Absolutely. Absolutely. Maggie, I could speak with you for, for, for so many hours and I wish we had another, you know, six hours to, to, to run, but uh, I am mindful of time. Can you tell our listeners where they can find out more about you and, and obviously the resources to, to continue on with this conversation? There's, there's so much out there. Oh, okay. Look, MaggieDent.com is absolutely packed full of, you know, articles and blogs and access to audios that you can find for free. The Parental as Anything podcast has five series, which covers everything from tweens to teens. My YouTube channel has over 125 <laughs> videos on it. Um, yeah, I look, yeah. So once again, as my boys, I can remember them saying, like, I was only about eight years into this whole journey. And one of them said, Mom, when you Google your name, you've got five pages. I'd hate to think what's out there now. So, yeah, it's not hard to find my stuff and there's a lot of it available for free. And if any of my blogs or articles or videos can support any of your clients, use it and share because that's the other thing. I have got a number of um, psychologists who use some of my visualisations as add-ons and I don't need to know about that. I have. You're never going to have any problem with using any of my stuff to support the transformation and healing of any child or any adult. So that's another space out there that's very different to mainstream because at the end of the day, 
what we want is all of everyone to be as healthy and happy as possible. Beautifully said. And thank you very much for, for being so generous to come into the show today and obviously share with us lots of uh, tips and strategies and your viewpoints. I think there's there's a lot to take away and, and you know, for everyone to go, I think, to, to your website, the podcast, Mental as Anything, and and all your books, you know, is it really good to, to I think, uh, get your hands on and, and try and understand, you know, young people in a different way, change your own perspective and, and, and learn and grow. So thank you again, Maggie. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Ness. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review, subscribe, share it via social media and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources and just lastly if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team develop your experience and get into some exciting work come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out i'd love to hear from you